and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 2nd of April 2014. And joining me on this edition is Assistant Editor Steve Withers. Laugh it up, Fuzzball. News Editor Mark Hodgkinson. I have a bad feeling about this. Put some feeling into it, Mark. I have a bad feeling about this. You're not a very good actor, are you? <laughs> <laughs> never, never claimed to be. B- bit of I've intonation in the voice. Feeling about this. <laughs> Just imagine you're talking about the podcast. <laughs> I'll be more dejected. I, I have a bad feeling about this. That's better. Games editor Mark Portwright. I'm nice, men. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. Your weapons. You will not need them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Ed, why not tell us all about these 600 quid earphones that we're all desperate to know about so we can all go out and buy them? Well, I, I sense a mild degree of scepticism uh, with you there, Mr. Hinson. Maybe but, sarcasm. Well, I think for some people, just the sheer psychological boundary of a pair of earphones that cost £600, uh, you know, I might as well be, you know, trying to plough the sea. But the review should be up by the time the uh, podcast goes out. It's abundantly clear after spending some time with them that the Sennheiser IE800, they really have taken a clean sheet of paper. They've looked at all of the all aspects of how they function, how you use them, what they're likely to be used with. And I, I stand by my comments at the end of the review. If we discount the slightly specialist world of one of earphones that are actually molded for your ear canal, which is a slightly different business, mainly for sort of pro musicians, this is... Uh, in in several years of listening to them, this is the best in-ear earphone that I have ever listened to. And that's not simply in an absolute sense where everything else is perfect, they're connected to a high-quality headphone amplifier and all that. Obviously, they're extremely good under those circumstances. You would expect nothing less. What makes them truly special, as far as I'm concerned, is that you can then unplug them from that, slap them into the headphone socket of a smartphone and they still deliver a truly astonishing performance they are just sensational and um as as i say if you spend your life commuting by public transport and just watching people on the train around you and you just want to block out the horror of modern commuting they are as good as as good as you get um and entirely free of of, of some of the sort of limitations that I've, I've found with some of these designs. They are comfortable to wear for long periods because they um, don't require you to stick sort of foam molds into your, into your ear canal to, to get, to get a proper mold of your, of, of your ear. Um, they get going up and running immediately. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm absolutely convinced that, that they are worth the not inconsiderable asking price. Okay, so let's see if we've convinced anybody. Mark Botwright, what do you think? Um, initially, I, you know, it, it does sound a ridiculous amount of money, but if you work out, say, you know, per hour, how long you would spend if you were a commuter, and if you work out how much, say, people spend on, say, an uh, entertainment system in a car, for instance, if they're, you know, commuting, you know, spending long times on motorways and the like, then it probably works out a reasonable amount. Um but still, I'm not buying them. <laughs> Hodge? A 600 pounds. I mean, the most I've spent on headphones is about 300. And I don't like in-ears. I find them very uncomfortable, usually. Although I would hope for 600 quid, they might have addressed the comfort issues. I'm just looking at a preview of Ed's uh, review now. Uh, what, are the, what are the cool little bits on the back? The two, like, exhaust pipes. What do they do? Well, they are um, tuned array bass ports. Um, which that. is decidedly <laughs> odd for, for a in-ear. Um, and uh, they're, in fact, the only real piece of metal in the whole business of it. The, the housing itself is ceramic um, to cut down on resonance um, and to make sure it's nice and robust. And um, I will say, comfort-wise, as you might expect, they supply you with a fair number of foam buns. Um, a lot of the competition at this price, um, they're using armature drivers and then there's sort of four or five, uh, well, as many as four or five armatures in, in each earphone. And that makes for something which looks quite sort of bulbous and, 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 and indeed can, can often be quite uncomfortable. Whereas these, um, if you genuinely cannot get on at all within ear earphones, they still need to go in your ear. So there's no, <laughs> there's no getting around that. But I, I thought they were extremely comfortable and they are extremely light. 
as well. So they don't place a huge amount of strain on, on either side of the head. And yeah, as I say, someone has put a lot of thought into into just just how people are likely to use them. Little things like the case. It's not particularly beautiful, but it's a cinch to get the earphones in and out of them. So you will use it and it keeps everything where it should be. And it's going to avoid putting any strain or stresses on the cable. Keeps everything nice and tidy. It, it's it's just a superb product. As, as I say, I mean, I've, um, I I don't know uh, if, if my recommendation will stand, but I have, in my opinion, I have awarded them a reference status, not simply because they sound fantastic, but they are the best engineered and best thought out pair of earphones that I've, I've used. They are literally what happens when a group of people that genuinely care sit down and are given the resources required to make a no compromise product. They are absolutely fantastic you have to consider them in many ways like um well, obviously it's just a shrunken version of things like the data sat um zt65 it's what happens when you just say all right cost considerations are taken away for this one just make it as good as it can be and we should always celebrate products that fulfill that that criteria is it snake oil with us uh i think if i was commuting say you know an hour an hour and a half of each way a day on the tube or something like that which i used to do many years ago then yeah i can i can see the logic behind buying a really good pair of earphones because you know you'd spend 600 quid on a pair of speakers without batting an eyelid and probably find that you almost never listen to music at home i mean i, I don't much anymore unless i'm testing something it tends to be more the convenience factor of something in the background so if i was you know, I wanted to listen to music and I wanted to listen to really, you know, high quality music with decent ear, in-ear earphones, uh, then I can see the logic behind it. Um, but like I think um, Mark Hodgkinson and also you, Phil, I struggle with in-ear earphones. I find them incredibly uncomfortable to wear for long periods of time. But I, I can I understand the logic and the argument that, uh, that Ed's making. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I mean, certainly I've blown considerably more than sort of and other things that I've never used. So why, why wouldn't I? Fair point, fair point. I just can't see, you know, spending 600 quid just to get earwax all over them. That's the mm. problem. Oh, they come with a nice cleaner. And, um, you all come, the, you come with, from. with a cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> a cleaner. <laughs> and um, the silicon tips themselves are all, are all washable. And so Again, and silicon tips, we're still talking about the earphones or the cleaner? <laughs> <sighs> I just can't, I can't take you anywhere. You know, this, is, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> Go to nice places. <laughs> so, uh, so Ed, obviously, uh, review sample is going back. Are you going to go and buy a pair? Do you know what? If I actually had cause to make regular use of earphones again, uh, they would be unquestionably. I'd have to think long and hard about where I'd find the money, but they, they are they, they are utterly free of, uh, of compromises. Unfortunately, other than when I actually now go out into public to review earphones, I, I don't get the opportunity to use them anything like as much as I used to. I don't really commute. Um, you uh, obviously don't use them in the car. That's in, unsafe and, I believe, illegal. So, um, yeah, my, my cause for them is a bit limited these days. But if I went back to, to my old life, like Withers was saying, I'd be yeah, they'd be right at the top of the list simply because um, much as I love my Nexus 5, as I say in the review, the headphone output is pretty crap. And yet the IE800 is sensitive enough and good enough that it still sounds bob on when you're using the I, the, the Nexus 5. And that that is a hallmark of quality, let me tell you right there. And the moment that you put a decent headphone socket near them, they're just phenomenal. Okay, so uh, that's... The Sennheiser IE800, uh, the review will be up on the site when this podcast goes out. Uh, let's move on to another review which is up there now, which is the Sony W829 Mark. Uh, this one caused a few surprises because it's actually second tier in the range, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's third tier. And this is another point. Of it's Sony's third tier, is it? Yeah, it's third tier. Sony's, um, Sony's numbering um, sequence What's this year. above it then? W85. <laughs> If you go onto the Sony website, oh, yeah, it's a little bit better organised than it was. But their, their model numbers are so similar to last year, and and their organisation of the website and the information, the way they've dispersed information, is just chronically bad. A bit like their menu systems. <laughs> yes, a bit like their menu systems. Well, I'll get onto that this week with the, the smart TV review, which is anyway uh, another thing. But um, yeah, it's the third tier TV, so it's um, it's a bit more similar to the W905 you reviewed last year, Steve. So it's um, it's got a VA panel rather than IPS that was in the 
slightly disappointing W95. Uh, uh, it produces really nice blacks. Um, there's just everything about it. It's, it's really, you know, it's very, very solid. Um, I, I think the, the major thing um, that I like, and I watch a lot of sport, is just a lack of screen uniformity issues. So almost every LED LCD has got some sort of panel array banding or a, or a dirty screen effect when the ball's panning across the grass. And this one is almost as clean as a whistle. So, and the motion handling's good. Um, it doesn't really need any of the processing um, gizmos that the Sony provide to get a really good picture out of it. Very accurate colours, a little bit undersaturated with red. Grayscale calibrated a treat. Um, video processing spot on. Smart features. Well, there's plenty of them. Um, many systems, as you say, Steve, are, are, are slightly convoluted and difficult to navigate around but you can you can get over that for a quality picture and i think the 50 inches retails for something like 900 pounds so it's a you know it's a good value buy as well so yeah very 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 impressive tv you're saying that this is a better buy than the flagship model for this year yeah one one thousand percent yes apart from maybe the 3d that was, was quite a bit of, i watched uh, i watched all the way through gravity in it and and when anything moves uh at the background or foreground there's quite a lot of ghosting but i'm not a big 3d fan and not many people are so i don't really care about that uh so that was the w829 from sony uh, reviews on the site another review which will be going up in time for the podcast going out is another curved screen from samsung steve but this is uh led lcd and not yeah. oled this this is the flagship 1080p, so full HD TV, uh, the H8000, which shares a lot of the same design characteristics as the one I've already reviewed, which is the Ultra HD uh, HU8500. So there's just about as confusing as everybody else in terms of modern numbers. Um, yeah, it's, and I was slightly concerned going into us. Well, I was slightly concerned that with all the manufacturers pushing 4K so much that they might sort of let their full HD models slide a bit, you know, and not really put much emphasis on them because they want people to buy the, the, the high-resolution panels and not buy the uh, the full HD panels. So I was glad to see that, in fact, the, uh, the flagship model, um, 1080p model, it does still you know retain almost all the features that you would find on the Ultra HD models. Uh, there's only two things missing, basically. One is the One Connect box, which obviously it doesn't need because it doesn't have to worry about upgrading to HDMI or whatever in the future. Uh, and it doesn't have a built-in camera, which, again, Samsung pointed out most people don't use. So they're not that bothered about it. And if you need it desperately, you can always buy an optional add-on. So in that sense, it, you know, it seems to mirror the flagship uh, Ultra HD model in terms of features and design. I've got to say that the build quality was good but it wasn't as good as the uh, as the ultra hd model um it was a little bit plasticky in places um but it looked very similar as a curved screen as you said phil uh comes in i think it's 49 55 and uh 65 inch screen sizes uh you know once you start getting to smaller screen sizes the logic behind any kind of curved screen doesn't make much sense to me at all uh, you know really you can kind of justify it on a big screen but on a smaller screen sizes you're kind of wondering what the point is aside from pure cosmetics um Although I've got to say that you kind of forget about it almost immediately after you installed it, uh, and within you know with a day or two, the fact it's curves, you know, you kind of forget about it entirely. Well, I was I was looking at your video footage for the video review, and uh, you had one clip called Curve, which was a shot across the TV. You could barely see the curve. I could barely see any curve yeah, in it. It's not that curved actually, and the smaller the screen size, the less obvious the curve is anyway, because there's less of a circumference. There's less of a section of circumference within the curve, you know, of, of that. If you imagine a big circle, the larger the screen How size. How many would you need that. for a complete circle? Uh, good question. <laughs> good Two question. for an oval. It's, 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 a, it's not a major curve at all, uh, you know, in terms of the degree of, of, a, of a I think it's 5%, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and in some respects it works quite well. What it is good for is things like uh, if you're sitting close to the screen in gaming, it can be quite immersive. Uh, for 3D, it works quite well because you get a real sense of looking you know, through into an, uh, into another world, if you like, in you know, a more immersive experience with, with 3D. And if you have light sources to the sides, it can be quite handy at eliminating reflections. However, if you've got a light source directly in front of the screen, which obviously I would never recommend anyway, um, that could be a nightmare because the, the, the reflections spread across the entire screen are kind of stretched along it because of the curve. Uh, so definitely avoid any light source directly opposite the screen. But that, that will be recommended generally and with any TV. Don't do that if you can avoid it. Um, in terms of performance, uh, it was it was a, a solid uh, LED LCD TV, as you'd expect from Samsung. Fantastic uh, 
performance out of the box. Uh, very accurate image, great calibration controls. Motion handling was good for LCD. Uh, the only sort of flying and otherwise flawless ointment w was um, some backlight uniformity issues. But as Mark just pointed out, that's that's pretty, you know, you, it's a bit of a lottery really when it comes Standard, to LED, really. LCD TVs. You're going to get a little bit here and there. It's just the nature yeah. of the technology. My only concern is that last year's Samsung's were really good actually in terms of uniformity. And um, at least the ones that we reviewed were. Uh, and I'm wondering whether curving it is just making it even more difficult to bounce the light behind the panel. So, but in any way you can really tell from that is to see some more more models, obviously. But uh, otherwise, you know, no, no, no screen, no, no dirty screen effect. Uh, you know, no banding. So a good solid performer. Uh, certainly, if you're in, in the market for a, a new full HD TV, um, it's worth looking at. Uh, obviously. Whether you like the curve or not, it's going to be a matter of personal taste. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it looks nice. It performs well. It's got loads of features. You know, it's a classic Samsung TV. Uh, and yeah, good all-round performer. Did you get to try out the? Uh, does it have their own calibration controls in it? Oh, you that? mean the uh, the separate ones, the ones that were on the? Yeah. They haven't launched that yet. Oh, they're not. Okay. They're still testing it. But that is something that will be well. Uh, that's, uh, that that applies to a lot of the uh, upcoming Samsung TVs. They there will be a software that you can run. That will be made available largely to professional calibrators that will allow them to calibrate the uh, TVs. But although, to be fairly honest, you can get it really, really accurate just using the controls that are already there. Um, I think this is, this is meant to be more of an automated feature, isn't it? But certainly using the calibration controls that are available, uh, you can get an absolutely spot-on picture. How much is it? Good question. 2300 <laughs> roughly. Uh, well, again, <laughs> that's the indicator price. Uh, obviously, it's dependent on the retailer. Yeah. So, you know, dirty screen effect, banding, um, uniformity issues. But, you know, people are just going to have to get used to this now, seeing as there's no more plasmas on the market, guys. Uh, it's that been is a valid point, Phil, because someone, I think on my review of the uh, HU8500, was talking about black levels and this sort of stuff. I said, well, listen, mate, there are no, pla no plasmas anymore, so this is it. This is what you've got. And just, there are more OLED screens to choose. You don't have an option aside from buying... Uh, you know, buying a second-hand plasma TV. And I'm not here to review against products that don't exist anymore. We can only review against what's the current lineup. Uh, yep. And I think people need to understand that now. When they start talking about, you know, our scoring, I'm not scoring against the ZT65. It doesn't exist. I'm scoring against the other LED LCD TVs on, on the marketplace. Yeah, yep. we're, now, we're now scoring non-negatives as positives. <laughs> if, you, if you see what if you see what I mean, though, the lack, the lack of something is now a positive. So good is now an absence of bad. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> it it's going to be a strange year this year. Uh, very strange when it comes to reviewing. Uh, obviously, for you guys, I've got fond memories of plasma, <laughs> and I'll stick to them. Yeah. <laughs> Still got two in my living room, so uh, there you go. Right. So that's a uh, wrap up of the hardware. What else have we got coming uh, in April, Steve? I have got uh, the Denon X2000, which is an entry-level uh, AVR, uh, which you can pick up for £299 at the moment, so a hell of a cracking price for what is a great little performer. The uh, Cambridge Audio Aero Speakers 7.1 package uh, that we've talked about briefly previously, that again, is, is a, uh, I do understand now, <laughs> having, having reviewed them, what Ed meant about the look of the speakers, the design. It is a bit, um, uh, what's the word, utilitarian? Prosaic, yeah, well done. Uh, but they do sound great. Um, and then, as I said, in a dark home cinema, you know, you don't look at the speakers. But the important thing is that they sound good, which they do. Uh, and I've also got an Epson TW7200, which is a sort of mid-range projector that just arrived for review. Um, yeah, that's about it. And you've got the TW9200 as well, which will be up. Oh, oh that hasn't gone up yet. Yeah, sorry, that, that will be up by yeah, time. Yeah, you've only had it for two months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, news today as well about a new Sony projector, and it's kind of um, a bit strange this one because uh, it, it looks identical to the HW55. Um, I can't see any sort of real features missing on it, uh, yet it undercuts it quite a bit. By a grand, I think, nearly. It's about £1,800, which is uh, absolutely yeah, incredibly aggressive pricing point from Sony. Um, and that's, that's considerably cheaper than the majority of the competition. And looking at the spec sheet, I think did it have a dynamic iris markup? No, I think that's the one. That seems missing. to be the only thing missing. Yeah. And I've got to say, to be honest, not a massive loss. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one, that's a really, really aggressive price from Sony. Yeah. Uh, so that's the HW40ES, and we're getting that in beginning of May, Steve. Beginning of May, yeah. Uh, so let's go, Ed. Ed, what uh, audio 
file greatness have you got coming this month? Well, I'm trying to be um, slightly less um, high-end lunatic. I, I'm always conscious that whenever I say I've got coming in the month, if at best I, I quote four products and then normally like deliver one of them. But I'm really confident, I have mentioned it before, we've got a nice, affordable uh, speaker package from Dali, hopefully early on in the month. Um, and then as I'm sure in a big pile towards the end of the month, um, a larger speaker package from a German speaker band called Quadral. And uh, then I will be scooting around again. Uh, I'm going to try and do some things which are, you know, a little bit more sensible after a £600 indulgent pair of earphones. I'm hoping to get in the least expensive pair of earphones that Shure, who were the original high-end earphone company, have ever made. They're £46, which even adjusted for inflation is the least expensive earphone they've ever made. And I want to see if all the things that make sure earphones what they are, if any of them have managed to survive the trip down to this almost disposable price point. So um, we'll see how we go with that. Cool. Uh, so let's go to uh, Mark. But right, what's the games team got coming up in April that we can look forward to, Mark? Uh, quick, someone open the thread. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me just think. April. It's a very old PC. I have to open it up. There's nothing out actually in April. Okay, so not a lot for for gamers to look out for, but I'm sure the podcast podcast coming up then it's going to be absolutely stellar as usual. <laughs> so probably quite brief at less than three hours though. So. <laughs> oh, bombed! Yeah, with a little bit. Right, let's move to Hodge. What have you got coming up this month? Uh, immediate future are a couple of audio products, which is Denon's uh, soundbar. I've forgotten the, the number four. Something like DHT one five three six. It's not that, but it's something like that. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> it's close. It's made it's up close so Google that, listeners. Google that. <laughs> and then um, I've got some uh, Roth Ollie Power 5, which are quite similar to the Rorks I did, but a lot bigger. Uh, they're a Bluetooth. In fact, they've got tons of connect- connectivity options, uh, little monitor-type uh, speakers. Well, big, big, biggish monitor-type speakers, actually. Uh, and I'm chasing down a Finlux 4K telly. Ooh. No, it, makes, it makes it sound quite elusive and dangerous. Some wheels. Mythical Finlux 4K telly. Is this the one that looks like a Samsung? No, I don't think I'd fit in the house. That's like 80, it's like 85 inch thing. No, I think it's a more standard. All oh, right, that one have to go to Steve then. Okay. Looks like Samsung. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, um, the uh, easel. Yeah, it's got the easel stand and everything. It's a complete rip off of it, basically. <laughs> uh, right, so that's everything for hardware this week. Uh, come back in a sec when we've got games news. So, Mark, gaming news. The Last of Us coming to the PS4, is it? Uh, yes, sounds very much like it is. Um, too many rumours, uh, too much uh, smoke for there not to be any fire. Last week we heard from a, a PlayStation spokesperson, I think it was in Turkey or something, sounded very kind of, you know, Chinese whisper style that intimated that it was in the works. Um, now we've got a retailer listing that shows up a, a complete edition um, and that's usually how these things slowly start to kind of dribble out. Uh, it was a, you know, absolute smash hit. Made most people's game of the year lists, if not, you know, games of the generation. Um, and so it just kind of makes sense, particularly for the the summer schedule. I think with a uh, Tomb Raider Definitive Edition having picked up some extra sales, uh, it just shows that there is a market out there for people who've, you know, perhaps they they traded in PS3 to get the PS4. You know, they've they've gone for next gen solely and now they found that there's you know not a great deal of games out um and so you know some of the classics particularly if it gets a nice little bit of spit and polish and includes all the uh downloadable content and that kind of thing it seems like just a a bit of an easy money spinner 
Are we going for every cliche in the book tonight? Have you guys gotten together and, and said, let's fulfil because we're going to mention every cliche that we can't, like, like flying the ointment? What was it you said at the start of that piece, Mark? It was another one. another uh, Smoke without fire. Smoke without fire, yeah. Chinese whispers. Chinese, yeah. A Chinese whisper in the smoke without fire. Yeah. We didn't, yeah. but I, I'm afraid that you've it's now game on. You've thrown down the gauntlet. This is, is going to be a podcast of two halves because I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> really step up my game and give it 110% in the second half to get all my cliches in. Yeah, well, I, I, actually, I was I was waiting for the cliches during the Sennheiser review, and, and sadly, they didn't uh, they didn't turn up. I, I'm not joking when I say that you get. Um, quite heavily chastised uh and you, also you guys in the past have put me up on the use of certain things but some 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 work i've handed especially for when writing copy rather than reviews um it, it when it's the difference between being paid and not being paid you uh, you, you generally wipe the cliches out pretty quickly so um <laughs> yeah you know there's not there's nothing like the threat of poverty to make me actually behave myself and not be a lazy git Right, back to games. Amazon uh, game streaming device to be unveiled, or is it? Uh, yes, April 2nd, uh, so that will be... Uh, the day the podcast yeah. goes out. Will it, or will that technically be yesterday? No, no, it's the day the podcast goes out. It's today, All right, it's so then today it's for today. Listeners, for listeners who, <laughs> yeah. who are listening on April the 2nd, not later in the week. Uh, yeah, so New York uh, press event uh, saying that there will be... Um, Amazon will provide an update on video business, uh, widely believed to be some kind of uh, streaming gaming device. Uh, could well be a dongle. Um, there's lots of speculation as to what form it will take. Uh, but yeah, hopefully we'll have actually some proper, you know, proper details about it rather than it just being in the wind. Uh, We've we've seen images of the controller they were leaked, um, and there's been speculation for a while. Uh, but it, it does seem to tie in nicely with the fact that they're now you know bringing all these services together with their instant video and that kind of thing. Um, the controller showed it; it's got a, a play and pause, you know, rewind and fast forward button. Um, so perhaps you'll see one subscription covering everything. Uh, yeah. But it, it'll basically be, it seems. Uh, capable of streaming PC titles um, at 30 frames a second. Uh, they have already bought up Double Helix, the studio behind Killer Instinct and Strider Reboots. Uh, and supposedly it could be out as early as this month, which sounds a little bit optimistic, but there again, you know, Amazon have a way of kind of just suddenly springing these things. And if anyone's got the server farms to suddenly offer, you know, PC streaming, then it's probably Amazon. My waking nightmare is that one of these services reactivates all the sort of real-time strategy games from the turn of the century, and then that instantly means that I can no longer do any work ever again. Just as a, just as a forewarning here, but um, if um, the uh, sort of the original uh, Red Alert, say not yeah, the original sort of Command and Conquer Red Alert stuff like that suddenly crops up on these on those sort of on-demand things, I'm doomed, really. That's, well, back in the kind of early, what were you more kind of back in the early cannon fodder days, those kind of things. Oh God, that's if, if cannon fodder was to become one of those games available, that that's the end of it. Um, I'll have to, you know, sell the house to to free up some capital and then just just give into it. Really, I loved that game. I loved it on a level I can't even easily put into words. Not even cliches. Just amazing. <laughs> And Sensible w- world of soccer as well. That'd be awesome. And to wrap up on the uh, games news, Mark, what else is there? Uh, not much. <laughs> I could make something up if you want. Yeah, go on. I'll do. <laughs> I don't. I don't know actually. I was going to go for a cliche there, but I can't think of anything now. New Shenmue. Back of the net. Oh yeah, yes, yes. There's been a new Shenmue yeah. announced. Shenmue three finally on the new Sega console. Um, <laughs> and everyone else has decided to quit building consoles just because they realise that it'll be just too awesome for them to compete with. Okay, there you go. And you heard it first on the AV Forums podcast. Right, that wraps up games. Uh, we're going to go to movies next. Right, so movie time. And Steve actually got off his arse and went to the cinema this week. So, Steve, what did he say? Yeah, I got off my arse and then sat on my arse in a cinema. Uh, I saw Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which, as the name might suggest, is the sequel to Captain America, the first Avenger, 
which was in itself was basically a glorified trailer for the Avengers. Uh, and I think this might also be that. To be honest, though, it is a great film. It could, it's certainly one of the top three, if not the best Marvels film I've seen to date. I thought it was absolutely superb. You know, Captain America is not an easy character to to adapt into films because you know he was developed in World War Two. He's a very patriotic character. He's kind of the Dudley Do Right, uh, and so a little bit boring and certainly anachronistic in the modern age. What Winter Soldier does really well is it takes that character and it, and it does put it into a story set very much in in, in the modern age. You know, a story about um, you know surveillance and the um, power of the state as uh, a conspiracy theory element to the plot. Uh, there's some really great action set, um, action set pieces. You've got Robert Redford in the film. It's got a fantastic cast. The performances are universally good. Uh, it's For a 12A certificate, it's brutally violent at times, quite surprisingly so. And possibly the most adult film that um, Marvel have made. I thought it was absolutely superb. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Kaz's review's already up, went up at the end of last week. And I agree with him completely. I think he's spot on in his analysis of the film. Um, I thought it was a cracking film. I think if you're a fan of the, of the Marvel movies, you'll enjoy it. But I think if you're not a fan of the Marvel movies, you'll still enjoy it. I think it's still an interesting and well-made movie. A lot of the stuff was done for real rather than using CGI. And it shows. It looks great. Uh, it's well-made. It's well-written. It's uh, it's quite uh, daring in terms of some of the plot points. I'm not going to talk about those. But a lot of stuff happens that I, you know, really caught me by surprise and will resonate throughout the other films that are coming, you know, other Marvel movies that are going to be coming, including The Avengers 2, which comes out uh, in May next year. Uh, as it will also have an impact on the TV series. If anyone's been watching um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on Channel 4 on a Friday night, which I have been and I quite enjoy, uh, it's going to have a big impact on that series too. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a brave and, um, you know, quite a dark movie. I you know, Thor The Dark World was a little bit darker than, the, than the, the Thor film that it followed. And this, again, and so was Iron Man 3, come think about it, it was also quite a dark movie. So this is, you know, it's, Marvel are going very dark in this second phase of their cinematic universe. And... Um, Good luck to them, really. I mean, I think what they're doing is interesting. I think it's 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 uh, daring and challenging and and even a little bit brave at times. So uh, yeah, I thought it was, it was a really good movie, really good fun, um, but but with a real point to it for once. Score nine out of ten. So, so I take it you really enjoyed this film, Steve, because you said it about seventeen times now. Yeah. Was it daring? You said that about eight times. <laughs> <laughs> and it plummeted the depths of darkness. Yeah, I'm afraid you haven't. In cliche terms, that was poor. It's not a tour de force. I mean, you know. Come on. <laughs> yeah. What are, What are we paying you for, if at all? <laughs> <laughs> if obviously, if you do go and see it, don't forget to stay around to the end of the credits because there's two post-credit sequences as well. Two. One of which relates directly to the uh, Avengers sequel. So, yeah, they have one sort of just halfway through the credits, then one right at the very end to make you sit right through the entire credits. To find out what the last, because they always do them. So, I, I, I very, I always miss them. I always have to check them on YouTube a month later because I'm always bursting for a piss by the time it gets. <laughs> they well, had a, they had well, a don't trade, take in like, the the jumbo size drink with you then, Ed, and you'll be fine. It's not that I'm normally well inebriated by the time I, I hate being in a room with that many other people. So the only way I can do it is <laughs> is with the edge taken off. What were we talking about? Clichés. <laughs> What the cliche is that I'm, I'm somewhere a long way up. That the we're all vaguely antisocial. Somewhere <laughs> over the autistic people. rainbow. Yeah, cantankerous <laughs> moaning bugger. That's what your cliche I, is. I just the idea of a packed cinema and a release <laughs> phase of it is just my. All right, so, so, save it for the Ed I Hate podcast. <laughs> it is coming, folks. I'm sure it'll be entertaining as well. So uh, that's Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Like you said, Kazi's review is on this site now, so uh, go and have a read of that if you want. And uh, as Steve says, highly recommended. Right, time to cue the music, because it's Mark's AV snack. After being asked to uh, theme something around the culinary wasteland that is Holland last year, you've asked me to do a Star Wars recipe. It was last week, not today. last year. Sorry? It was, wasn't it that long ago? You said last year. It wasn't it that long ago. It was last year. <laughs> it feels last like last year. Last Wednesday last year. It's all the same <laughs> to me. Uh, so I've got. To come, I came up with some Star Warsy, which was um, it's just a play on words. Uh, uh, we had Baba Fettuccini was it was a candidate, but then I thought, well, no one's going to cook it's Fettuccini. It's Boba Fett, not Baba Fett. Boba Fett, Boba Fettuccini. 
I said it right. I didn't say Baba. I said Baba. Check said it. Baba. Check it. You said not. Baba. Check it in your bloody head. <laughs> and then, uh, so we're going for a hamburger with a twist. So um, I've actually got quantities this time. It's like a real recipe. So 500 grams of good mints, and I don't mean necessarily mint steak mints. I mean stuff with fat in it. That's good mints. Uh, a slice of bread. Uh, so a drop of milk, or enough to make your your, your slice a bit soggy, uh, so you can mush it up in your hands. Um, a pinch of mixed herbs, plenty of salt and pepper, and a crushed garlic clove. Wang all that in a bowl and mix it up with your hands. No food processors this time. You've got to, You've got to mix it in by hand till it's all um, incorporated together. Lay it out. You can form four patties from this. Four good sized patties. Um, make a hole in the middle with your, with your thumb and then stick in some cheese. So for Mark uh, Botwright, we can have some uh, spicy chili, blow your balls off um, cheese. Uh, otherwise, mm. it's just something sensible like a gruyere or a cheddar, that's something that melts well. Uh, pat them out and so the uh, cheese is just um, totally sealed in the middle of the meat. And then cook it on a low grill, probably about... Uh, what will it take? About 15, 12, 12 to 15 minutes so, on a low so grill. We're, we're grilling it this week. We're not getting our best frying pans out. No, don't, not your best frying pans. Your best grill. And on a, on a low grill, otherwise you, you'll burn it. And a lo- it will be a raw low grill. in the middle. So what? how, how far off the ground? Uh, <laughs> depends. Uh, mine is about three foot off the ground. But if you've got an eye level, then you're talking about five and a half foot. It's going to vary that, depending on your cooker. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, where was I? Yeah, that's it. And then when you eat it, it will explode like the death star. <laughs> the cheese. Yeah, just to be very <laughs> bubbling out. Just, just, just for, 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 you know, I don't want to be the health and safety operative of the Avon Food Podcast, but I'm obliged to point, contractually obliged to point this out. The cheese will be hotter than Satan's asshole. There's a tip, there's a tip, there's a tip. You can stick your cheese in the freezer before you start for, for about half an hour. And then that, that'll stop it melting under the grill and seeping out unse- unsightly, in an unsightly fashion from the edges. So Life's stick- too short to freeze. No, you don't, you don't have to, to be honest. You might get away with it. <laughs> Otherwise, you just end up with a messy pan. They used to do incredible burgers in Scotland, obviously the home of fine cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> where, healthy cuisine, if nothing else. Where, where there was cheese in the middle of the burgers and then they would deep fat fry them. And uh, yeah, you couldn't bite into that. You'd, you'd burn your mouth off with the cheese. If you get it right, it won't. It won't. It'll just be at melting temperature. If you get it wrong, then if you're going to burn your mouth, it's a bit of a lottery. It's a so bit... lawsuits to avforums.com. <laughs> yeah, the warnings were issued. <laughs> Emails so so you're suing us at avforums. <laughs> so that's the hand. The hamburger death. The hand. <laughs> the Death Star hamburger. The Death Star hamburger. Yeah. There we go. Give me a better topic next week. Right, okay, uh, Mark Botwright, what do you think of that? Uh, I like it. Uh, I've dabbled in making my own burgers, and so, yep, two thumbs up from me. Uh, Mr. Withers, what did you think? Yeah, I was uh, well, I kind of zoned out halfway through, to be honest. <laughs> I think I missed a few key things, like the cheese bit. But the, why, why do you put bread in there? Uh, to, to, to make it lighter, otherwise it's, uh, quite, it's uh, quite a heavy... You know, it's quite a heavy yeah, meat. I made so the mistake of using like food, all yeah. meat, and then yeah, it gets it gets kind of heavy. So the breadcrumbs and the and the milk just make it a lot of light bite. So it feels quite light, even though it's extremely unhealthy. But it, it feels quite healthy as you're eating it until the next day. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, no, sounds good. I could be up for that. Two thumbs up. And Mr. Selly. Well, I do. I make my own burgers every every Tuesday. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it sounds it sounds good fun. I I don't generally steer towards putting cheese in them because I haven't been freezing my cheese up until now and you know having a fireball in my face has been been a problem but I will say two things um if anyone is listening and the idea of using full fat mints horrifies them on a level that they can't cope with you can use a beaten egg as a binder uh yeah that's exactly what I did that does work although it's actually much ickier to actually make the damn thing Mm -hmm. I will say that well, if you're going to do that, wet your hands under the tap, cold tap, uh, cold yeah. water to stop it sticking to your hand. Also, um, instead of cheese, one thing that does work brilliantly, and I picked this up from one of the most terrible bars in London, 
that did an excellent burger but was otherwise dreadful is a nice thick slice of um, chorizo sausage inside the burger instead. That's something that's cracking fun to bite into. That works really, really well. And then finally, on on Make Your Own Burger-a-thon, um, the magnificent shop that is Lakeland Plastics, which sounds terrible, but it's great fun to be in. They've got a burger shaping kit. I've got one. It's brilliant. I don't I know. Have no, more, no more lumpy spherical burgers. That's that's where the happiness is. So what a if healthy you want to bunch go all in on making your own burgers, the Lakeland Plastics burger forming kit, brilliant. Can't fault it. We're typical AV enthusiasts, aren't we? We're all making our own burgers. The most unhealthiest thing we can get. <laughs> no, I use lean mints. I, I generally don't anymore. I prefer not to use the egg, and I'll just go for a slightly higher fat. Quick. I mean, you know, I'm fighting a losing battle, is my view <laughs> on this. I consume 2,000 calories a night in lager. So, you know, whether my mint has got fat in it is somewhat irrelevant, I suspect. Um, but well, the lamb mints also works quite nice. Yeah, lamb mints nice. I want to mix it up. That's even um, Trying to make burgers out of corn mints. I did try that once, and I think it's possible if you have some sort of industrial press that can give you about 2,000 pounds of pressure mm. to get the mints to actually bind. Yeah, never again. Mr. Withers, you're very quiet on this. Has it turned your, your stomach, has it, Mr. Healthy? Yeah. No, no, not at all, no. I just was listening to... Um, I've, I've never made my own burgers, but I'm fascinated that everyone else seems to have done that. I'm pleased to say that Mr. Withers is hard at work, actually. He's multitasking like a demon for a man, because I've just had an email pop off my iPad saying that um, the uh, Sennheiser review has been moved to, to done, which is lovely. You know, go Steve, is all I will say there. Yeah, I haven't quite finished yet, actually, yet, but uh, I was halfway through when this podcast started. <laughs> right then, Blu-rays released this week. Frozen, Homefront, The Family and Kari. Uh, what do you recommend, Steve? Well, I haven't actually seen Frozen, although I understand it's very good and a billion dollars at the box office can't be sniffed at. Uh, and my Blu-ray, my 3D Blu-ray actually arrived today, so I will get a chance to watch it at some point this week. Homefront, I saw at the cinema, that's Jason Statham doing his thing. Uh, you know, basically an action film, um, which I quite enjoyed, actually. It was, you know, something uh, challenging. I think it was written by Sylvester Stallone. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Uh, You know, he moves into a a rural area. He's uh, an undercover cop. He's basically kind of retired. He's with his daughter and he falls down the local hard nut family. And then uh, hell, hell, you know, trouble ensues. Um, And there's a fair bit of fighting and punching and action. Uh, which, uh, you know, if you like that sort of thing, and I am quite partial to a bit of Jason Tatum on, on the side. Uh, yeah, that was quite good fun. Uh, the Family I haven't seen, but I have read Kaz's review. It's um, a Luc Besson movie uh, with uh, Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, where they're a mob family who get moved um, to France, uh, and, you know, part of the Witness Relocation Programme. Um, and again, it's uh, kind of a comedy action Apparently, uh, not quite funny enough to be a comedy, and not enough to be uh, not enough action to be particularly exciting. And Carrie, I saw at the cinema, uh, and I think as I said at the time when I saw it, uh, it's one of those remakes where you kind of wonder why they bothered because it's so similar to the original film. Better off just picking up the Blu-ray of the original Carrie with um, um, Sissy Spacer. Right. So, out of those, which one are you recommending? Uh, I'm going to recommend Frozen, even though I haven't seen it yet. Oh, right, that's great. Because... Oh, fantastic. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, we've got it. It came came into our house today, Frozen. I've not seen it, but I've heard it. And there's an awful lot of music. I like a good animation, but it just sounded like too much music to me. You sorted yourself out, Ed? Yeah, sorry. Um, I, most of the thought, I, I don't know, um, I have five pins in, uh, in my left ankle. And every now and again, uh, one of the vertical ones locks ever so slightly. And it is, um, it's not painful because there's no nerves involved, but it just feels wrong on every level. And the only thing you can do is stand up and walk around and sort it out. Uh, otherwise, um, I'm no use to man or beast until such times it's better. Why have you got five pins in your ankle? Because it's permanently dislocated without them after a childhood accident. This is the sort of thing that Marvel films are made out of, surely. <laughs> yeah, you can be a sp- What's Iron your superpower? Hating everything. He hates absolutely. His superpower is <laughs> hate. He just hates everything. I don't have to take this from you. You you have a, a list of dislikes. I mean, if we do a themed each podcaster's 15 minutes of bile, I don't have any doubt in my mind, Mr. Hinton, that your 15 minutes will be just as action-packed as mine. Oh, we I, just, I, I don't I, know. I don't, we know. Just touch on I, I don't, I don't have a passion for hate. That's the thing, though. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll you, just you come see, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. 
just um Steve, you seem rather distracted this evening. I'm not feeling very well actually. Oh, what's wrong with you? Really runny nose. Yeah, you've always got a bloody runny nose. <laughs> yeah, new. worse than normal. All you right, need to cut okay. down on the powdered self-esteem, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help either. Joking aside, um, each day we do the podcast. Steve dutifully puts together our uh, itinerary. Sometimes it's Steve has to sort of fend around and, and, and find things for us because we're too hopeless to actually find things for Steve. And it's this is a valid point. Um, many films, uh, including a number of you know very very fondly regarded films, uh, Close Encounters, Blade Runner, um, Alexander. That's not fondly regarded, but it's in the list. Uh, and Watchmen, Watchmen, a film I've never seen. They all have multiple versions because uh, directors keep messing about with it. My favourite film of all time, Apocalypse Now, obviously has Apocalypse Now and Apocalypse Now Redux. Um, I believe this was a result. Um, someone who actually reviews films can correct me if I'm wrong. Alexander, is it now four different versions? Yeah, the reason I put this in three weeks ago <laughs> was because <laughs> Oliver Stone had announced that he was going to do a fourth version of Alexander. So he did the original theatrical cut, uh, which came out in, I think, 2004. Then that was released on DVD. Um, and then he released on DVD a director's cut, which in all honesty, was a simplified version of the theatrical cut. He basically put it into more chronological order. He also didn't use the BC part because Americans couldn't understand what BC meant and didn't understand why the numbers were going in the wrong direction. So he had to simplify it and make it obvious that time was passing in one particular direction. That was released. And apparently they they sold really well. Even though the film was not a great success at the cinema, it didn't do very well in the States. Well, they did do quite well in Europe. But the blue, the DVDs, rather, it was sold really well. It sold like about 3 million copies, uh, much to Wonder Brothers' surprise and probably Oliver Stone's. So they came back to Oliver Stone and said, look, do you want to do like a, a, a definitive cut? So he released the now rather inappropriately titled Final Cut. Uh, about in 2007, I think it was. And that was like a, a four-hour version of everything he had all thrown in. This like epic version, um, like his final, final version of, of Alexander. And now, 10 years after he released the first theatrical cut, he's decided to do his ultimate cut, which is going to be his final, 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 absolutely, I promise this is going to be the last time I'm ever going to do this version of Alexander. Now, whether Alexander is a film that really warrants for different cuts... It does bring to mind the phrase, just in terms of polishing a turd. Polishing a turd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the the thing is that you hear a lot of established directors say this: that that the work is never finished, but once it goes out the door, you should just forget about it. There is a certain discipline to that, and there's some directors who, in the past, have made changes, and then decided why the hell did I do that and gone back. And uh, the the one I'm thinking of there is E.T. Yeah, well, actually, all Close Encounters, in fact, because Close Encounters was, uh, the original theatrical cut, was rushed into release because uh, Columbia were in deep financial trouble and they needed to get the film out before the end of 1977. It had to go out in November 77, otherwise they were likely to go under. Uh, And so they they basically made Spielberg release the film when he hadn't really finished fine-tuning it. And he was never happy with the theatrical cut. So in 1980, he said to look, can I have a bit of money and go back and finish the film the way I wanted to make it originally, if I'd had another six months to finish it? Because he wanted to release it in the summer of 1978. Um, And they said, yeah, OK, fine, but we need something to hang a marketing campaign on. So if we're going to give you money to do this, you're going to have to show us the inside of the uh, uh, mothership at the end. And he said, OK. So he shot the thing with the ship and Desert Dakota Paxi. He added that in. He made some changes. Um, and he added the scene at the end where you where you see Richard Dreyfus walk inside and see the inside of the mothership. He bitterly regretted doing that afterwards. Um, he said he should never, ever have shown what was inside. It should be left to your imagination. And in fact, in 1997, he did his final cut, his director's cut, which is a combination of the theatrical cut and the uh, special edition. So he uses stuff and pleasures like the ship and desert, which is a great scene, but he doesn't have the bit at the end where you see inside the um, mothership. And in fact, I think the final cut is... Um, the, uh, the, the definitive version of the film as Spielberg really intended it to be. And the same goes for Blade Runner, really, where you had the theatrical cut, which was, again, a compromise because at the time, Rudy Scott had effectively been fired from the film uh, because the Bond guarantors had taken over production. Uh, they, they added in the voiceover that everyone hated uh, and a happy ending that Scott didn't want. And then in uh, that was in 1982. So in 1992 he had the opportunity to release uh, what was called at the time a director's cut, although it wasn't really, but it was like he made a few changes, like removing the voiceover and taking off the happy ending and, and adding in the infamous sequence with the unicorn. 
And then uh, in 2007, which would have been the 25th anniversary of the film's release, Warner Bros. finally had full control over the film and they allowed Scott to actually create a final cut as he really intended to do it back at the time in 1982. Um, and I have to say, I do think it is a superior version of the film. It's probably the definitive version of the film for anyone who's a fan of Blade Runner. And there are five different versions of Blade Runner. There's a the theatrical version, the international cut, there's the work print, the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, director's cut and the final cut, all of which are available on the Blu-ray, which is a fantastic box set. Steve, uh, you said perversion at the start there. Sorry? You said the theatrical perversion. Did I? Yes. <laughs> End of the count. No, I think it's just my bunged up nose. <laughs> but it is funny how certain directors you know, can't leave a particular film alone. I mean, why Oliver Stone has chosen Alexander to be the film he's constantly tinkering with when he's never done it with any of his other films? Uh, it was a mystery. I think it's maybe because the story about Alexander means a lot to him. And he thinks, and probably because he thinks he f***ed it up the first time around, that he didn't deliver the film he wanted to, even though, you know. And it's, it's never going to be an easy story to tell. Alexander's story is a, is a huge story with so much in there that you could tell. And it, versions of interpretation on history that, that, you know, maybe there isn't a definitive yeah, version that to be made in a single film. That's Peter Jackson's problem. Peter Jackson's yeah, he, problem he is can't leave anything alone. that he just can't leave anything alone, and he has to he has to have everything in there. I mean, King Kong, that you know, you could have cut an hour out of that. Uh, you could have cut two hours out of every Lord of the Rings film and made them better. Um, I disagree. I prefer the longer version of the Fellowship of the Ring to the still shorter version. So you know, for me, it's a more rewarding experience. The um the big uh, yeah. I don't, do we count spoilers on a film which is now fourteen years old? If no, more, more. go on. But the original Fellowship of the Ring, um, the motivation for Sean Bean's character is rather better explained in the longer version and still better explained in, um, obviously, the book and sort of other bits and bobs that come with it. I mean, in so much as he comes across <laughs> a, bit of a bit of a sort of bipolar idiot in the short, let's say short version, the original version, it, it makes a bit more sense. Um, with the uh, with the extended version, um, but you see, but you see, the thing is, when you look at filmmakers' careers, and and this is every filmmaker's career because they have to make it before they can then start, uh, you know, um, partaking in stuff that they really want to make. They have to they have to prove that, that they know how to manage and how to craft a story and all the rest of it. And in every director's early career, are some real masterpieces, probably their best work. As soon as they get given any control, it's like anything else. It, it, it's, it's like, you know, different influences coming in on them. The yes men are more than the no men. And then you start getting real messes like King Kong, like The Hobbit. I mean, my God, does it need to be that long? Yeah, well, no, I, mean, I mean... But you're, you're, what you're describing there, Phil, is something that actually, if we're honest, in, in a way sort of affects us all. Our best work is always created when we're on the back foot. When we have either something to prove or something is on the line. My work's always A A one plus. Well, <laughs> be that as it may, <laughs> um, I, I I make no bones about the fact that when um you know when something when something is either up against it or or you've got something to prove or you've got something to sort out, it always it always improves. Yeah, you want me um, to do my best work? Piss me off. Well, that, that, that's that's how you get me riled. You get me riled. I'll I'll prove you wrong. Uh, the the um, I think the interesting thing, you're actually valid point, Phil, and I can understand Spielberg and uh, Ridley Scott's desire to go back to Close Encounters and Playbun respectively and finish them off because they they were under pressure at the time they were being made. They had control taken away from them. There were other factors that, that, made, that meant they didn't make the film that they set out to make. Um, with Alexander, I'm not quite sure what Oliver Stone's obsession with that is between him and yeah. the movie. With most of this other stuff, though, things like Lord of the Rings, um, and lots of, it's quite common now for directors' cuts to come out later on. I mean, it's either partly a marketing thing, you know, you can sell to something twice, but also I think if you're, you know, these days, in the old days, you know, you released the film in the, in the cinema, that's where everyone saw it. Maybe it was shown on TV later, but there was no real after-sale market. There was no home video market at the time. Now, with with the home video market the way it is. There is an opportunity to make a film that you couldn't <laughs> release in the cinema. Video market. <laughs> I know it's the correct turn of phrase, but uh, that just charms me. <laughs> you just there is a big wedge of VHS. Super VHS. Going, yeah! Super VHS. Beta Max. But there is an opportunity now to release films in a much longer version. Yeah, but without the constraints this, this was, of, of, this was of the point I was making, though. This was the whole point. 
you know, when you're under pressure and trying to prove yourself and so on, you make the wise cut. You make it you make it as tight as you can make it. You make it make sense. When you're given all these e- when you're given all these extra bits and here you know, you can take time afterwards to do your cut and all the rest of it. I've yet to see a a real blow it out a real sorry I'm thinking trying to think of a cliche here give me a second I've yet to see a real knock it out the park there you go. <laughs> uh, director's cut where I think that is ah, so much more that, superior then. to to the original that. I would say that the special edition of the Abyss is a vastly superior film to the theatrical version and the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is a completely different film that is can only you know watching well, it in is the it? shorter version makes because it's still got what's his face in it. That's the problem. Orlando Bloom is the yeah. lead, <laughs> but I mean the story is vastly superior in director's cut. It's a much, much more rewarding experience watching the longer four-hour cut than the cut-down theatrical I'll, cut. I'll give you so, that one. I'll give you that one because I did watch the director's cut of that, and I thought that is a completely different movie. I'll give you that one. But in in the majority of cases, it it it's not the point. And and a good point is George Lucas. I mean, once he'd built well, his he empire, should be, he should there should be actually an embargo. <laughs> Lucas's work should be taken away from him on completion of the cinematic release. Well, I mean, once he completed his, his empire, what did he do? He gave us the prequels and what was the other one? Red Tails, which was an absolute flop. The guy, the guy made it lucky with Star Wars. You know that was that was that made his whole career. That well, made his that was whole... a little bit harsh. I think he was quite talented back then. I mean, American Graffiti was a massive hit American as well. So he was lucky film, twice, was he? Yeah, but that, <laughs> again, this comes back to my point: early career. As soon as you have your kingdom. Or as soon as you have your way with things, or you're established, I've, I, I can't think of any director. Steven Spielberg, I think he's the ex- exception to the rule. He's got his own studio, but he doesn't get self-indulgent. He's still it's still about the story and, and making a, a tight piece of entertainment. Okay, I'll give you. Jurassic. I don't think he's self-indulgent in the way okay, that Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you. Become. I'll give you direct. I'll give you Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. But after Schindler's List, can you still say that? Well, whether they're great films is not an issue, but they're not self-indulgent and overly long. But has he made anything that approaches his early work after Schindler's? Uh, Munich was good. Yeah, I was well, hang on, Private Ryan? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I enjoyed, uh, I thought War of the Worlds was quite quite entertaining and, and a brave decision in terms Minority of... Minority Report was decent. Yeah, Minority was great. I can't yeah, uh, yeah, decent, and but there, was na- there wasn't a Jaws. Well, no, but God, Jaws is one of the best films ever made, come on. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know whether that over and over again. I mean, I'll be honest. My favourite Spielberg film is Jewel. I've always, I just think it's just fantastic in every single way, shape, or form. It's almost like okay, then just just to give himself a challenge, he should make him just do a do a film for for the Sci-Fi Channel on the budget of the Sci-Fi Channel and see if he can still do it. Sharknado three. Well, I don't know if he needs to constrain himself with what's gone before. But, uh... I, th- I think this is just kind of, it's one of those situations where you can always say, a little bit like with Blu-rays and, and DNR and the like, director's vision and at what point do you just say a work of art is and at what point do you say that it's finished? I also think to a certain extent it's almost like, Kubrick's shadow looming over everything, which is the idea that if you give an author absolute freedom to do whatever they want, they will come up with, given enough time and enough money, and you know a brilliant work of art. I just think there there are the exceptions, and then there are the rules. And I think for ninety nine percent of movie makers, it should be a case of just leave what's made and try not to go back with it. But when it comes to, say, like Oliver Stone with Alexander, I think it's just a case of he's not going to get that chance again. It was clearly something that meant a lot to him. He's unlikely to get, you know, kind of someone throwing money at him to make that big kind of epic again, given the way that it flopped. And so he probably feels that he has enough there to, you know, kind of rejig the pieces and finally make them fit. Well, no, Blair, I mean, you know, I don't think Alexander's as bad a film as people make it out to me. Anyway, I, I quite enjoyed it. I've got I've got the three current versions, and I'll buy the fourth one just to complete my collection. <laughs> yeah, but we're getting back to that subject we did the other week there, where we just buy tap for just for the sake of yeah, buying. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but this this is another good example. Yeah, films that I just keep buying <laughs> can't, can't Steve stop myself. Steve just likes Rosario Dawson's boobs. <laughs> That's the fundamental truth. They they, they are magnificent boobage. in that film, uh, and if you want to see her all of her, and I do mean all of her, uh, check out Trance. 
thanks for that tip, well, Steve. And on, I think on that bomb a bombshell. bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm that, amazed that you got through talking about Captain America without mentioning Scarlett Johansson. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good point. Well, on that note, we probably ought not to delay Mr. Withers. For yeah, I was just thinking that. He's, <laughs> he's, probably, he's gone off an He's already multitasking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, uh, <laughs> his attention this evening has been wandering all over the place, so we'll let him get back to Scarlet. Uh, and that is it for the AV4ns podcast this week. Uh, Mr. Hodgkinson's already uh, departed. He's obviously away to make some uh, hamburgers. Uh, so all I need to do now is thank Steve Withers. Would it help if I got out and pushed? Mark Botwright. Hurry up, Golden Rod. And Ed Selly. Asteroids do not concern me. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Bookmark avforums.com for the latest reviews, news and video. Plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again next week. 